0: With 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.
1: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 449.
2: People who I've interviewed or who I've spoken to or who I've written about, who have reached not only the top of their profession, but are incredible visionaries, tend to read far more than average.
1: Jeff Bezos is a dreamer who turned a bold idea into the world's most influential company, a brand that likely touches your life every day. As a student of leadership and communication, he learned to elevate the way Amazonians write, collaborate, innovate, pitch, and present he created a scalable model that grew from a small team in a Seattle garage to one of the world's largest employers. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. The book we get to read this week is called The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman, and it's written by the man who's making his third appearance on the Read to Lead podcast today. That's Carmine Gallo. I'll ask Carmine to share why the ability to simplify your message is a superpower today, how to bring purpose to everything you read, how to amp your presentations in order to better and more effectively inspire others, and lots, lots more. One of my favorite new superpowers, and something that can be one of yours as well, is when you master the skill of note-taking. If you struggle with things like collecting or capturing notes effectively, uh, connecting new ideas to existing ideas and organizing your notes, developing your notes, distilling your notes, crystallizing your notes, or then creating out of the notes that you take. Otherwise, what's the point, right? If any of those things are a struggle for you, I've got good news. We cover all four of those and more in my new course called Note Making Mastery. And my goal for you is that within just a few weeks of taking the course, you'll have a library of notes at your fingertips that are more helpful and useful to you than all your previous year's worth of notes combine. If you want to improve retention and comprehension of the content you consume for personal and professional development, if you want to be the go-to person for ideas and insights when everybody else is stuck, if you want to see the outputs that result from your content consumption efforts lead to things like new connections, well-deserved promotions, and opportunities that were previously out of reach for you, then your notes, your personal knowledge management system is going to be the difference maker. It's the one thing that'll give you the crystal clear. Advantage, I would say. I've hosted three live cohorts through the course previously. We've had folks uh, from all walks of life, including a New York Times best selling author, teachers, police officers you name it. And they report things like increasing efficiency with their time and being able to capture and organize ideas and notes the first time through a book or other material. They say things like, My listening skills have improved. I've taken leaps in my professional growth and development. I'm more consistent in publishing content. I've enhanced my reading retention and comprehension. I've become a better conversationalist. I'm finally starting the writing of my first book. If any of those things are something you want to accomplish, then Note Making Mastery is for you. It's currently available in a self paced version. And you can find it at this special website. It's not at readtoleadpodcast.com. No, a much shorter and arguably an easier to remember website, I'm told. JeffBrown.me. You can find it there. You can jump into all the content right now. Go at your own pace. It's note-making mastery. And you can find it at JeffBrown.me. Carmine Gallo is the best-selling author of Talk Like Ted and The Storyteller's Secret He's a communications coach for widely admired brands such as Pfizer, LinkedIn, Intel, and Coca-Cola, and a keynote speaker known for teaching the world's most respected business leaders how to deliver dynamic presentations and share inspiring stories. He is a columnist for Forbes.com and Entrepreneur.com. He is also the head of Gallo Communications in California, where he resides with his wife. His new book is called The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman. Well, Carmine, it's so good to have you back. I enjoyed speaking with you about uh, Talk Like Ted several years ago, and then more recently, your book called uh, Five Stars. We've had a couple of authors on in the past who've written books centered around Jeff Bezos. One was called uh, Day One, as I recall. Another one was The Bezos Letters, which you make reference to. Yes. But I'd I'd love to know when and how did you come up with the idea that Jeff Bezos was going to be the focus of your next book. I was actually kind of surprised when I first saw that, of course, the, the subtitle kind of clued me into where we were zeroing in on, but how did Jeff Bezos come to mind for your next book?
2: Jeff there are certainly great books out there on Bezos and very popular books especially biographies on how Amazon got started on it and Jeff Bezos himself and you're right there are some books out there that focus on certain management principles that uh, that Jeff pioneered but my lens as you know is leadership through the lens of communication i wrote a article for ink magazine about three years ago Mm. on why jeff bezos banned powerpoint at amazon (laughs) why he banned powerpoint in senior level meetings specifically it turned out to be quite popular and over the course of the next few months i began to uh, speak to many former Amazonians who have adopted Bezos and the principles they learn from working side by side with Bezos to start their own companies. But when you talk to former Amazonians, you realize that it's not just the management strategies. More often than not, it's the communication methods and strategies mm-hmm. and templates that Bezos pioneered to fuel Amazon's astonishing growth. That's one of the reasons, the main reason why I pursued this topic. But also, Jeff, I'm a storyteller. I'm a former journalist, uh, as you are. The story itself is irresistible. You have some pretty interesting characters in the story. Mm. But for a person to have a bold idea, an idea that nobody thought would make it, his boss even tried to talk him out of it, (laughs) So he's got no contacts. He's trying to raise revenue, he had to borrow 50000 from his parents, mm. which turned out to be a really good investment for them. Absolutely. Uh, no one believed in it. He didn't even have a name for the company. Uh, in fact, he called it Cadabra until someone who he was speaking to said "Cadaver, Cadaver." That's the name of your company, <laughs> and he realized pretty quickly he had to change it. But to go from just having a bold idea to transform it into not only one of the world's most admired brands, but I argue the single brand that probably has the most impact on your day-to-day life, other than the company you work for. I mm. think that's an astonishing story.
1: Yeah, yeah. As someone whose work I'm quite fond of is the late Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman, uh, who says that uh, anyone can make a subject complicated, but only somebody who understands it can make it simple. I was just sharing this yesterday with my note making mastery cohort. What would you say to a leader who worries as many do that simplifying an idea is equivalent to dumbing it down?
2: It's not dumbing it down. Simplifying is not dumbing down the content, it's outsmarting the competition. And I learned that from so many communicators and leaders who I've interviewed or who I've written about and Jeff Bezos specifically. So Mm -hmm. while I was doing the research for the Bezos blueprint, I came across a remarkable finding that I'm sure is going to resonate with all of our listeners because they are readers. Mm -hmm. If you want to communicate a complex topic that is simple, easy to understand and reaches the majority of uh, Americans and that the majority of Americans can understand. And I'm using the U.S. because that's where the studies come from. What grade level would you write for? Fifth grade, ninth grade, high school, college? I would say fifth grade pretty close it's eighth grade which is still counterintuitive yeah yeah and over at amazon they have writing classes amazon is a writing culture mm. and that starts from jeff bezos who put a premium on writing skills very early on in amazon's history and so i think that's something that all of our listeners can appreciate the fact that he does put a high premium on good quality writing but here's what's counterintuitive good writing doesn't mean making things so complicated that your audience doesn't understand it. Mm. So if you take Bezos and you take all the shareholder letters, I analyzed 50,000 words of letters over 24 years or so, and you put them through a software analysis like Grammarly, you'll find that they range from college-level writing to ninth grade or so or eighth grade, but most of the writing that fell into eighth grade language started around 2007. So mm-hmm. in the last 10 years of his writing, his writing got better, even though Amazon expanded considerably and became a far more complex company Mm. because they ventured into artificial intelligence and cloud computing. Mm. The fact that his writing got simpler, shorter words, simpler sentences, simpler explanations, less jargon. I noticed that as a trend. And then I started talking to people who had worked with him. That was very much intentional. Mm. Jeff Bezos wrote every word of each letter. And he pondered those letters for months ahead of time. And he, he was very deliberate about the words he chose. So one of the big lessons I have and, and that I came away with just through my own research is that great communication is a skill. Writing is a skill. Public speaking is a skill. And like any skill, it can be improved upon.
1: Mm. There's even a passage in the book from Bezos. I can't remember if it's from one of the letters or just his comment on, on a particular idea that you analyze. It, it's, it's a couple of maybe three paragraphs and like 90% or something of, of the words used are one or two syllables and like 76% of the words yes. are just one syllable.
2: I'm glad you caught that. Uh, that was when he was explaining the Kindle that's what it was. That's right. And it was directly from a shareholder letter. So Jeff Bezos was very insightful and he understood that many of the uh, products that Amazon was using or Amazon was introducing were very new to people mm. and e-readers, especially, I think there was another e-reader at the time, but nobody was using e-readers. <laughs> so what is the point of this and why why would I want an e-reader to, to read books mm. And so he made it very, very simple. His explanation, like you said, most of the words he used were one-syllable words. So he would say, you know, think of a book and have it in your hand in less than 60 seconds. Those are the kind of words he used. Mm. But that was very intentional. You can imagine how complex it is to create something like an e-reader. But mm-hmm. when he communicates it to th- an outsider for the first time, it has to be simple. So the lesson is great communicators use short words to talk about big ideas. And I had to go back to school for that. I don't know if you <laughs> read that, did I? <laughs> I I I feel weird having to acknowledge it after writing 10 books, but I had to go back to writing class especially since the first uh, the first third of the Bezos Blueprint is all about writing and simplifying and communication skills. So I reread a lot of the books you probably know, mm. uh, some of the best books on writing, including Stephen King's and, mm. and many others. And then I went one step further and I got on Zoom calls with instructors from around the world, from uh, here in the US to the UK who teach writing. And I was fascinated by this idea of simplicity and simple words and short words. And one instructor in the UK took me all the way back to 1066 and the Norman invasion. And that is when Latin-based language was introduced into the English language. (laughs) And it replaced the older, shorter, more ancient words of the language. But here's what's interesting. When you have to communicate a topic in a way that is urgent, gets the message across quickly and is memorable, what we do intuitively is Mm -hmm. we go back to the ancient short words. Mm -hmm. So for example, I think I put this in the book too. If uh, we're leaving the house and I say, Jeff, turn off the lights when you leave, Mm -hmm. because I don't have time. I'm rushing out of the door. I want you to get and get it urgently. That's probably what I'd say, Jeff, turn off the lights when you leave. Hmm. All of those are like one. I think those are all turn off the lights when you leave, like all one syllable words. <laughs> I do not go to the Latin based words, which would be Jeff, upon departing the premises, you know, uh, reduce the illumination in the abode. <laughs> we don't do that. That w- right. That's legal ease. Yeah. But what's fascinating is that there is a reason why we do that. Here's what happens when you get on the PowerPoint or when we're trying to write something to impress. Mm. What happens? We lose that intuitive simplicity and we make things more complicated than they should be Mm. because we need to impress you with our language and the words we use and the jargon. It's it's counterintuitive, but when you get to a point like Bezos and many other great communicators, Warren Buffett especially, who I write about, when you get to a point where you're really confident about your topic and you understand how to how to reach people, mm. you tend to write much more simply than the average person.
1: You know, I identify with so much of what you just shared about doing it wrong <laughs> or how you can do it better. If it makes you feel any better, I had a going back to school moment of my own in my career when I was in radio. I did a nationally syndicated morning show for a number of years. And one of my responsibilities was delivering the news. And I learned some bad habits earlier uh, in my career and I would deliver it very formally and with flowery words. And I had to learn, I had to relearn to talk like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> to deliver the news in a, in a more of a lifestyle manner that, don't, that the average person is not going to to be pushed away from as you speak, because they, they feel like you're talking over their head all the time. I was so self-important about it, but I had to unlearn all that in order to do it in a way that people w- would gravitate to.
2: That's why I call simple is the new superpower, Yeah, because you, the ability to simplify complex information really will help you stand out. Indra Nui, the former uh, CEO of PepsiCo who is now on the board of Amazon mm. has talked extensively about this this idea and she says the most important communication skill you can learn as a leader is the ability to take complex information and simplify it and she was once asked you know, what, what is your advice for young people especially as they're growing as leaders or managers and she said simplify simplify simplify
1: you mentioned stories a bit ago, and, and, and your book does story very, very well, pulls you into each chapter uh, like a great book does. So I appreciated that about it very much. And that reminds me of just leveraging metaphor and leveraging analogies. How can we better use those to help educate our audience and, and explain our ideas while being simple at the same time?
2: Well, all of your listeners uh, are readers, and you know that great fiction, great books are often using metaphorical language. Mm. Shakespeare was the, the master of metaphor. You know, Juliet is the sun. Is she really the sun? What does that mean? You know, it's a metaphor for everything else about her radiance and beauty. So metaphorical language has been with us from the beginning of time, and And a few neuroscientists now are studying metaphor quite extensively and they're finding that it's the way we think. We're constantly looking for something when we see something new or abstract that we don't understand, that's unfamiliar, we look for something familiar to compare it with. And our mental process goes directly into that. My argument is that great writers and great communicators have always been masters of metaphor. Martin Luther King's dream speech, like every sentence is, is a metaphor. Right. But even in business, again, one of the reasons why I gravitated to Jeff Bezos is because he does this all the time. Think about Amazon. He was very intentional about the name. Why Amazon? Because it is the Amazon, the real Amazon is Earth's largest river, Earth's biggest selection, Earth's biggest river, Earth's biggest selection, even when he was only selling books because he had the vision that you could sell almost anything online. This was at a time, by the way, Jeff, people forget. The most common question Jeff Bezos received when he was pitching the idea was, what's the internet? <laughs> not, not how does it work, but what's right. the internet? Right. So that's why he had to communicate simply to help people overcome that initial reluctance to not only buy something online, but to put your credit card information in there too. Mm. Most people were skeptical of that. So he was constantly looking for, and again, deliberately, very deliberately looking for appropriate metaphors. To help his team or to help customers understand what he was trying to achieve, so he came up with a lot of metaphors that are still used in as buzzwords today in many of the companies that I've worked with, especially startups or tech companies in Silicon Valley where I live. Everyone uses the flywheel. Mm-hmm. Everyone uses oh, always the flywheel effect. Flywheel is a it, it, the real thing is a mechanism that as a, as it a gains momentum and picks up speed. Well, he. Read a book. Jeff Bezos read a book, and a lot of his best ideas came from books. He read a book by Jim Collins. Took the this idea of uh, growing a company by creating a an an imaginary flywheel. How would how would growth continue to build momentum? Lower prices attract customers. Customers attract third-party sellers. Third-party. So that's why it all came back to We got to keep lowering prices. Lowering prices. Pretty soon, the flywheel gets faster and faster. He read that in a book. Flywheel associates it with Amazon and now the flywheel effect. I walked into a company three weeks ago and there was a big poster. Oh, that's our flywheel, Carmine. That's our flywheel. Isn't that cool? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's more of a Bezos, a Jim Collins thing. And they looked at me like I, I come from Mars. They had never heard of that. So, what, what's fascinating to me, Jeff, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is for years, I have communicated or interacted with entrepreneurs and business leaders who will use a lot of these methods and strategies, they don't even know it came from Jeff Bezos, but most of it, like two pizza teams, that's another metaphor, two pizza teams. Mm -hmm. Everyone does that in Silicon Valley now. When you are building a product, especially a high-tech product or a new feature, if you have too many people on the team, it creates inefficiency, bureaucracy, and so everything's about lean, lean, lean. Well, Amazon at one point in its history was getting too big. Decision-making was ineffective. Mm. And Bezos said, we got to make it smaller. So some of the leaders asked Bezos, how small? And Bezos, again, he's always thinking, how do I communicate this simply so that people get it? And then he said, well, uh, early on, I remember we had very efficient teams that we could feed with two large pizzas. How about a two-pizza team? (laughs) <laughs> and that's stuck, Jeff. See, that's the point. Why mm. do these things stick? Why do these things get circulated, not only among Amazonians, as they call themselves, but around other companies too? Because mm. metaphor is a shortcut. Simple ways of grasping complex ideas that could fill entire books. Mm.
1: You mentioned earlier investors asking, What's the internet? I was speaking to a group of, of physicians uh, that own their own practices, run cash only practices. They fire the insurance companies, if you will, about uh, leveraging video, uh, YouTube, and audio podcasts into into their marketing. And I remember getting the question early on What's a podcast? What's a podcast? <laughs> yeah. Yep. You can't assume anything. As, as a person who has written a, a few songs of his own, I want to move to presenting here. You talk about in the book why you believe great presentations are similar to, to catchy song hooks that, that get stuck in your head. How so exactly?
2: Because if you look at the research, we, we should talk about songwriting offline too. I'm, I'm I, I love songwriting. Mm. Well, you're in, you're in uh, Tennessee. Uh, Luke Combs yep. is one of my favorite songwriters these mm. days. All those catchy hooks. Yes, Taylor <laughs> Swift obviously writes catchy hooks. Everyone knows what a hook is. Everyone knows what an earworm is. Mm. You don't remember. Well, maybe you do because you're a songwriter, but most people don't remember the verses, they don't remember every line of every song. Mm. They remember the hook. That's when we start singing along. Yeah. The neuroscience literature in communication theory is starting to show the same thing. When you deliver a PowerPoint, when you get mm. when you have a business meeting, when you're delivering a pitch, people don't remember nearly as much as you think they do. They do not remember every word on every slide. They don't remember every piece of information you have to select. Good communication is a matter of selection, not compressing everything, you know, it's selection, not compressing. So you have to find the hook. Usually it's a story. It can be a wow moment. It can be a demo that, that happens sometimes, but usually it's a story that captures people's imagination, grabs their interest immediately and gets them involved in the story. And that's why creating the hook, creating a story, or I have a whole chapter, what I call the log line, is creating those those first few seconds where you put everything into context and you give people a reason to listen to the rest of the story. That's what I mean by a hook. If you don't have a good hook that people are going to remember, don't expect them to remember all of your presentation because that's not the way the brain works.
1: I uh, posted online, as you know, yesterday, a portion of the first page of, of chapter 11 of your book. Uh, a chapter, when I saw the title, I, I got really excited. <laughs> it's oh, called "Yes, <laughs> Leaders Are Readers. Leaders Are Readers. Yes. Chapter 11. I saw that online. What are some of the reasons to read more books than we do now, in your opinion? I obviously am a fan of this thought, but what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, let's start with the quote from a Navy admiral who's a former NATO commander, James Stavridis who actually endorsed the Bezos blueprint. Mm. I love this quote. I can't say it better. Good leaders must be good communicators. And the hard work of writing is best sharpened on the whetstone of reading. Mm. So he was one of the first people to, uh, I've known him for years, and he was one of the first people to really open my eyes that if you look at good communicators, the best communicators, the best leaders, almost to a person, and I've noticed this just anecdotally, almost to a person, they read far more than average. Mm. They're the ones who read more than most of the people in the organization. Once again, that's one of the reasons why I gravitated to Jeff Bezos, because he is a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the fact that Bezos discovered science fiction novels when he was a teenager working on his grandfather's cattle ranch somewhere in a small town in Texas, a local benefactor had donated uh, free Uh, science fiction novels, you know, to the local library, if it hadn't been for that fact, it probably would never have triggered his interest and his passion for space exploration. Um, And in fact, the the Echo and Alexa is something that he took from science fiction as well. Mm. But he became a voracious reader. And many of the strategies, tools, even devices that Amazon introduced came from directly from books that he had read. He started a leadership book club Mm. and some leaders who I talked to were a little peeved looking back because it was also during the summer when they were supposed to be off (laughs) every month, they had to read the Jeff Bezos selection of books and come together and talk about it. Mm. Uh, But those books turned into AWS two Mm. pizza teams Uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. That was a famous book by Clayton, Clayton Christensen, Mm -hmm. uh, the Harvard, Harvard instructor. That book inspired. And I haven't I didn't read it carefully enough just to see how it did. But that inspired the Kindle. So Mm -hmm. I have this chapter part of leaders or readers where I go through all of these books and show you which one's inspired what devices or what mm-hmm. products or what management philosophies and Bezos has been very open with yeah I copied that from this book copied this from that book mm-hmm. but it's not just Bezos right you know that uh-huh. it's a uh, Warren Buffett and Elon Musk and and Richard Branson people who I've interviewed or who I've spoken to or who I've written about who have reached not only the top of their profession but are incredible visionaries tend to read far more than average like Admiral Stavridis uh, he reads 100 books a year so I thought I read a lot 50 to 75 books a year he reads 100 books a year <laughs> David Rubinstein yeah, the billionaire David Rubenstein, big philanthropist, he reads more than 100 books a year. Wow. Uh, the, so there is a reason why these people are where they are. They're constant. Bill Gates, another example. We can go mm. on. They're constant learners. That's the difference. They don't assume that they know it all, they're constantly learning it all. And you can only learn through those books. And there, that's why there is a direct correlation between podcast listeners and, and readers.
1: Mm. I talked to a lot of people, Carmine, who, who struggle with this idea of, of leading with purpose. It's one of the reasons why I started the uh, note making mastery. It's my take on note taking. I call it note making mastery because yeah. folks struggle with this idea of, of reading with purpose. What advice would you give to someone who identifies with that struggle?
2: My point, and I, and I love what you're doing as well, because it doesn't matter if we're reading all of these books, but we're not absorbing any of the information. Right. Uh, so that that's why Jeff Bezos started a leadership book club, mm. because it not only forced you to read the book, but you had to read it and understand it enough to come back to your leadership team and explain it and talk about it. So you Mm -hmm. had to know it a little better than average. But when I say reading with purpose, I learned that from David Rubenstein and and from others. If you think about how many millions of books uh, there are on Amazon or available, if you were to read one book a month for your entire life since The other day you you started reading till Mm. about 80, 90 years old, the math turns out to be 0.002% of all the titles available (laughs) on Amazon. You would only get through that. And that's if you read a book a month. Mm. So David Rubenstein reached a conclusion where he said he had to find books in relevant categories. And that's what he called purposeful reading. Mm. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And I learned a lot from that as well. Yes, you have to allow a little bit of room for serendipity. There's no question about that. That's why I still love strolling through bookstores or libraries. But more often than not, the books that Rubenstein reads are those that are called for him from the people he trusts who know him. Mm. They're the ones who send him books in relevant categories. So it doesn't have to be directly tied to what you do, right. but relevant. So if you think back on Jeff Bezos, a lot of the management principles that they used at Amazon came from books that were not about e-commerce, but were about innovation, because innovation is so central to what he did and what they do at Amazon. So he read innovation books. That's what we mean by being purposeful and finding books in relevant categories that are a little outside of your discipline. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And it's a helpful tool to begin to take control of your time and, and where you're going to focus your energy on on that reading. I've had to do that because I can't read all of the books that publishers send me. Now that I write for different publications, publishers send me all the new books. Mm. Some of them look fantastic. I, I, I can't get to all of them. And I, I want to spend my time reading books that I can learn something from that'll advance the subject. There are not that many good business books, especially that advance the subject it's a lot of it is derivative. So it's very important that I find those those few books that advance the subject for me and teach me something new.
1: I, I feel your pain when it when it comes to getting more books sent to you than you can you can possibly read. And I'm a big believer to, to your point earlier that the best creativity is borrowed creativity. All creativity is remixed to some degree or another. And when we read books outside our, our disciplines, related, mm-hmm. uh, but then combine things we're learning from other disciplines to the discipline we're familiar with, that's where some of the best ideas come from. You take these disparate concepts, seemingly disparate, and bring them together and and sometimes smash them into something new. It can be truly, truly incredible, which is, you know, evidenced by many of the things that, that Bezos has done and others. So I want to go back to communication for just a second with regard to presentations once again. Uh, talk a bit, if sure. you would, about what it means to AMP your presentations in order to inspire other people.
2: Yeah, AMP is something that my wife and I develop. My wife, Vanessa, works uh, with me. She works in our company together, and we mm-hmm. co teach communication programs at, at Harvard through executive education. For many years, People come to us and say, well, they still do, obviously, but I I try to shoot them down immediately Well, when they say, well, I'm not that good. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not Mm -hmm. a good communicator. I'm uncomfortable as a public speaker. And then inevitably they say, I'm not as good as Mm so-and-so, whoever that might be. Oh, you wrote a book on Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm nowhere near that. Mm -hmm. Well, neither was he. That's (laughs) neither was he. Great communicators are made, not Born all of the all of the people I've written about, most of the people I've met, you're only seeing them at their best after years and years of practice. So we mm. have this area, this chapter in the book where I show I take text and transcripts from video of Steve Jobs early on in Apple when they first started around 1979. Mm. And he was on a television interview, and it was painful. He was extremely nervous, and you can tell on the video. Mm. Uh, And I learned later that he was nervous even in 1984 when he was launching the new Macintosh for the first time. So he was a nervous speaker, uh, Mm. probably a little more introverted and not that comfortable in front of people. Mm. Then by 2007, he gave what is now considered one of the most astonishing business presentations of all time, which was the introduction of the iPhone and also one of the great commencement speeches of all time, Stanford University. Uh, You could see that with Bezos as well. You could see this uh, this transformation into better writing, better speaking, better Mm. presenting. So we call it AMP, which is ability, message, practice. Those are three variables, some of which you can control, some of which you can manipulate. Mm. So all great speakers have an ability. They know their message and they've practiced. Now, ability is relatively constant. You can improve on it, but ability is what you bring to the table, Mm -hmm. what strengths you bring to the table. Maybe you're already naturally gregarious, so that comfort level is is going to help you. Maybe you have dance or sports in your background. You just have really good posture mm. and presence. Maybe you've been blessed with a, a wonderful speaking voice. So those are abilities. If you have those abilities, build on those. Mm. Some people are very, very creative, very visual, but everyone can manipulate the message and how much time they spend practicing. Mm. So the message is everything we've been talking about. Being an editor, going through your presentation. Are you using short words to talk about hard things? Are you using metaphors? How are you telling stories? All of those things which bring a presentation or a message to life. Those are things you can work on. Mm. You can improve dramatically from one presentation to the next and practice. When I wrote a book on the TED Talks, most of the most famous viral TED Talks, the TED Talks that become the most popular. When I spoke to the speakers who deliver those TED Talks, they practiced not just a few times. One person in particular practiced 200 times. Mm. And it's one of the top 10 TED Talks of all time. Most people don't practice nearly as much as they should, especially ahead of a speech presentation or a pitch. They just kind of flip through their slides a little bit without doing it out loud, but Steve Jobs, uh, weeks ahead of his public presentations, I know this is a fact, would gather a few trusted people in an auditorium, get up on stage, and play a character. And they said he changed. He, he because it was a performance. Mm. He was practicing the performance, and then he would lower his voice, change his demeanor, walk back down into the audience, and ask questions. What, what was unclear? What could have been better? That's practice. So you can take AMP, going back to AMP, you can take two different speakers who are both considered extraordinary. How they got there could be a little different. Mm -hmm. Maybe one had more natural abilities, so they didn't have to practice that much. Perhaps the other one was very, very
1: uncomfortable.
2: And so they had to practice a lot more than the other person, Mm -hmm. but they both get there and they're both extraordinary speakers.
1: Yeah, the, the, those percentage levels of each of those three kind of go up and down depending on where you're at in any given given moment. And I appreciate it too, the the diagrams that you included that help kind of unlock that for the reader. Very, very helpful. Um, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask, Carmine, not directly related to the book. Before I do that, anything else from the book that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure people know?
2: We, we covered a lot of ground, but there is a quote that Jeff Bezos said, and it's become quite of a a popular quote, and I think it's really important. And he said, you don't look for your passions. You know, you don't find your passions. Your passions choose you. Mm. And I think the direct quote was he used the word choose. So you don't choose your passions. Your passions choose you. And I think that's so relevant to everyone, because I think I, I hear too many people, especially college level or folks who are just joining the the workforce saying, well, you know, I, I, I'm looking for my passion. I'm looking for a passion. Mm. No, let it come to you. Mm. Experiment, try different things, work for different companies, talk to different people outside of your industry, read books outside of your industry and see what you gravitate to. So that magic formula is when your talent and your passion comes together. Mm. And that's what happened with, uh, with Jeff Bezos as well, especially when it came to space. Because when he first watched Neil Armstrong, you know, land on the moon, Mm -hmm. I forgot how old he was, but he was old enough to be watching it on, you know, the old black and white TV in his Mm -hmm. parents' house. And then it was serendipitous, but he discovered all those science fiction novels. Mm -hmm. So Neil Armstrong, the science fiction just came to him where space exploration was something he had to do, which is why he recently left Amazon as the CEO and is now running. His space company. It, it's something that's very common with most successful people today is it's interesting when you ask them how they found those passions, passions found them, but you have to be alert and receptive to them. I think it's a powerful piece of advice.
1: Well, uh, you're a person who, as you said, is very particular about the books you read. You get in about 50 to 75 a year. That's that's about the pace I'm on these days. What are a couple of books that you've been really fascinated by in recent in recent years?
2: Well, I'll tell you the book I go back to. So mm. I may have already mentioned this one because I go back to it once a year. And that's Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. So da- so Kahneman is the one who came up with Kahneman and Tversky are The two scholars, Nobel Prize winners who are credited with finding and discovering a lot of these biases Mm. that we have, especially things like the availability bias, uh, recency bias, uh, sunk loss. But you know the mm-hmm. bias where a loss affects us more than a win, those type of things that you hear all the time now, especially in behavioral psychology, they were kind of the fathers of behavioral psychology, mm-hmm. so I like rereading Kahneman's work because most of the business books that I read that quote anything related to behavioral economics, behavioral psychology, or how the mind works and the shortcuts it takes. Almost every single line always goes back to Kahneman. So just read the first book, Thinking Fast and Slow. But he also goes into communication. And Kahneman was uh, famous for saying, if you want to be thought, credible, and intelligent, do not use a long word when a short word (laughs) will do. Going back to simple as the new superpower.
1: (laughs) I was talking via email with your wife, Vanessa, over the last couple of days, and she mentioned just how proud she was of the research. That has gone into this book. And I, I love chatting with authors about this next question, especially those who, who take great pride in the level of research that they do for the work. And it's a sort of a personal knowledge management related question. I'd love to know what are some of the tools or techniques you use for managing the research you gather to make it easy to find later? How do you go about choosing what to collect, what to throw away? How is it organized? How do you distill it down, make it your own, and then ultimately create with it? Any or all of those uh, areas you want to touch on uh, with regard to personal knowledge management and your research, feel free.
2: You have to start you have to begin by being a storyteller, looking for those looking for those stories. So I compile a lot of stories. If I'm reading books, I'll take notes typically in a hardcover book. I'll take notes in the margins and then I will go back to Evernote. And I will, so a digital file, and I'll take some of those notes and try to put them into a digital file and then tag them under storytelling, Bezos, or, uh, you know, different categories that I have. So that gives me two ways of remembering what I read. Uh, And so I also read newspapers. I'll read the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and often, especially on the weekends, they'll have essays where they'll talk about books. Those two publications are, that's where I get most of my book ideas, especially from their weekend essays. And I'll, I'll take notes on that. So it really, it's its just years of compiling stories, writing down anecdotes. And when I when I travel and I travel a lot and I speak to different groups, I open myself up to different groups. I, I, I take a lot of different invitations, especially if I think I can learn something from that conversation. Company, that industry, or, or that culture, or that country, and boy, I've got a notepad, and I'm taking, I'm taking a lot of notes, and always thinking about, you know, the, those stories I can tell. For example, a few weeks ago, I was invited to speak at a leadership conference in South Texas, uh, right on the border. Ne- had never been, that, you know, that far south in Texas so i certainly jumped at the uh, at the opportunity and one of the other speakers met a woman who's a kind of a local hero she was the first hispanic woman to be a president of a u.s university and just in passing she started telling me about how the community gathered together to pitch elon musk and spacex to bring spacex wow. down to brownsville and the rio grande valley soon as i heard musk pitch SpaceX. <laughs> this is the person who assembled the team. Tell me about it. That's a story. That's going to go somewhere. I don't know yet where it's going to go, but it's going to fit somewhere. Right. So you have to. James Patterson said this once. You have to. Oh, as soon as you walk out the door, you're looking for stories. You're sitting at a park bench. You're looking for stories.
1: Mm. Yeah. When I was in radio, it was always about life is show prepped. You've got to have your radar up all the time, right?
2: Good point. Yeah. Well, that's something I learned in journalism school. Uh, when I when I came back on my first assignment. And I didn't have a story and I said there was no story there. And my professor got really upset at me and said, Gallo, there's always a story.
1: Well, his book, again, is called The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman. His name is Carmine Gallo. I'll link to the previous interviews we've done with Carmine as well. They are certainly well worth your time, as are the books. Carmine, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Jeff. It's a terrific audience. Just a real suitable audience for for my content, and obviously, they're passionate readers. So, Congratulations on the great work that you do as well on your podcast. And thanks to everybody listening.
1: I encourage you to connect with Carmine online. Obviously, I want you to check out his book, The Bezos Blueprint. Also, the book he recommended. You can find links to all that per usual at the show notes page for this episode and that is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 449 for episode 449. Remember too, if your notes just aren't working for you, there's a way to fix that. And I am here to help. It's Note Making Mastery to get into the course right now go to jeffbrown.me again it's called note making mastery at jeffbrown.me we talked quite a bit about storytelling today we'll continue the storytelling conversation next week with my guest anthony butler as we dive into his book primal storytelling marketing for humans that's next time on the read to lead podcast That does it for this week. Hope to see you next time we get together. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Or as Carmine's Chapter 11 says, leaders are readers.